Morning church, big thank you to John and the worship team, lovely time of worship together, I'm sure you enjoyed it in your homes, and uh, we're going to continue this morning with uh, our Songs of Salvation series, and I want to ask you to please turn to Psalm 51, I really wrestled with God over the psalm, Um, I felt Him prompt me, and then I resisted and tried to find another psalm. And I looked elsewhere, but he kept bringing me back. And as preachers, we must preach what God gives us. So here we are. You might be asking, it's such a beautiful psalm. Why am I reluctant to preach it this morning? And I thought I'll read something Spurgeon has said about the psalm, and it might give you some idea of my angst. So Spurgeon says this, It is a bush burning with fire, yet not consumed. And out of it a voice seemed to cry to me, Draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet. The psalm is very human, its cries and sobs are of one born of woman, but it is freighted with an inspiration all divine. As if the great father were putting words into his child's mouth, Such a psalm may be wept over, absorbed into the soul, and exhaled again in devotion. But commented on, ah, where is he who, having attempted it, can do other than blush at his defeat? I was reluctant before I read that passage from Spurgeon, and so I find myself standing before you in weakness, trusting only that God has given me something to say to you, And he's going to help me do that this morning. Before we approach this burning bush, um, it's a good thing to recap how David got here. When he writes the psalm, right at the beginning, it says to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And um, David's story is that he is God's anointed king. And unlike the king before him, he love God and serve God with all of his heart. He won many victories and led his people with aplomb. Under his leadership, Israel experienced a golden age of God's favor and blessing. But at the height of his powers, when the king should have been at war, David found himself idle and so exposed and vulnerable and he's looking out on his balcony at the kingdom of, or the city of Jerusalem, and he sees a beautiful woman bathing. And enticed by her beauty, he asks for her, and he commits adultery. She falls pregnant, and he tries many ways to conceal his sin. In the end, the only option that's left to him is to send the husband Uriah out onto the front lines of battle so that he will die. And then he ends up marrying Bathsheba. All of this in an attempt to hide his sin. He lives in unrepentant sin for about a year. It's important to realize that. He didn't marry Bathsheba and then come to his senses. The baby is born and then God sends Nathan the prophet. And when Nathan speaks to him, suddenly 
David is awakened to his sinfulness and what he's done. And that's when he pens this powerful psalm of repentance. We all come to the psalm this morning as sinners. Some of us might be walking in repentance. Some of us might be hiding our sin in, our, in the shadows. And still others might be sitting there with hard hearts, unaware of the sin in our lives. And whatever the case may be, this powerful psalm has something to say to each one of us. It can be split into three sections. And the first section is six verses, and each section David asks God for something. And my first point this morning is, in verse 1 to 6, he asks for forgiveness. Now, he asks for forgiveness, but he doesn't demand it. He doesn't feel entitled to it. He comes as someone with no leg to stand on. He asks God for mercy. Have mercy on me, O God. Now, mercy means that something bad that you deserve gets taken away from you. A punishment you deserve gets taken away. He's not coming to God bargaining. He's not coming to God shifting blame. He's coming to God saying, I deserve the punishment. Please, would you take it away? Repentance always starts here. We can't make it up with sacrifices or doing the right things. We can only appeal to mercy. God, please take away what I deserve. David can't make his adultery right. He can't make his murder right. He can't make any part of his sin right. He can only appeal to God's mercy. And as we carry on in the first verse, there's a beautiful thing that happens here that I, I hope uh, I can show you. He doesn't just ask for mercy, but he says, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, David knows God intimately. He has an intimate relationship. And even though he knows he doesn't deserve forgiveness at all, he also knows he can ask for it because of who God is. He knows that God loves him steadfastly. That love is not dependent on actions. It never changes. Though our behavior can change, God's love towards us never changes. David knows this because he knows God's character personally. He's hopelessly at fault here, but he can appeal to God's steadfast love. The other thing he appeals to is God's abundant mercy. Those are the two characteristics he appeals to, steadfast love and abundant mercy. When we turn to him in repentance, there's always mercy. It never runs out. Knowing God's character is very helpful to the wayward son. When he turns to God, he knows that that mercy is new every morning. How well do you know him, church? Do you know God's character? When you pray, do you appeal to the character of God? Do you really know who he is? The next thing we see is that David owns his sins. He says, my transgressions, my iniquity, my sin. There's nothing worse than an apology that 
is without ownership. We've all used phrases like, if I have hurt you, I'm sorry. Or for whatever I may have done, I'm sorry. And these are, uh, or I'm sorry, but you. These are all examples of hollow apologies. We might have the right intentions when we use them, but they are seldom received because they don't have the depth of ownership. David completely owns his sins. And there are three Hebrew words that he uses. The first one is pesha, which means transgression, and the meaning of that is rebellion. The second word is avon, iniquity, which means crooked dealing. And the third one is chatter, sin, meaning error and wandering. He deliberately uses all three words. They are the main words for sin in Hebrew. In doing so, David is showing us that he is accepting the whole idea of sin as his own responsibility. He's leaving no stone unturned. Whatever way you want to look at sin and what it might be, he's done it. And so he names all three, transgressions, iniquity, and sin. And in verse 3, he says that he knows his transgressions. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. The Hebrew word used here is yada, and it speaks of an intimate knowledge. The tense used indicates that he was continuously aware of his rebellious acts towards God. No wonder in Psalm 32, he writes this. Now, Psalm 32, he refers back to this year of unrepentant sin. Look at what he says in verses 3 and 4. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. Selah. My sin was ever before me. Friends, we should dread unconfessed sin, unrepentant sin. We should dread it. You can't lose your salvation, but you can lose the vibrant, intimate connection we experience with God through His Spirit. Sin kills our relationship with God until it is fully owned and fully confessed. In verse 4, David says, Against you, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And of course, that seems strange at first because we know surely he has sinned against Bathsheba and he has sinned against Uriah. But ultimately, all sin is against God. It is rebellion against God and God's judgments. And God is blameless. That's what David says here. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. God is blameless in his judgments. I'm amazed when I hear human beings judge or make uh, verdicts on God's judgment. We often hear things like in the Old Testament, God was, did this and this, and he was too harsh in this judgment on the Amalekites and so on. 
and God's violence in the Old Testament and how can God do this and this and this. As if we, with our clouded minds of sin, can see more clearly than God and on any of the decisions he makes. David is submitting himself to God's judgment and he deserves whatever comes. The same with you and me. When I confessed my pornography addiction to Anita, I knew that this might be the end of my marriage. She might abandon the marriage. I had sinned against Anita and God. And whatever the outcome was, whatever his decision was on those consequences, he was right. I must face the consequences for my sin. You are right, God. I'm wrong. I will accept whatever comes from your hand. Only help me to return to you and walk in repentance. David gets to a core issue in verse 5. The roots of the issue. He hasn't just suddenly turned into a sinner because he's done some bad things. He says in verse 5, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. I was born a sinner. I have always been a sinner. This is not an excuse to sin. This is an acknowledgement that we are sinners from the beginning and we will be so throughout our lives. Who can save us from this body of sin? Praise Jesus, who came to save sinners like David and you and me. My last thought under the section in verse 6 David gets to what God wants from us. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. What God wants from us is to be honest, honest to the very depths of who we are. You can put on outward graces and paint pretty pictures about what's happening on the inside, but deep down, do we really have it all together? Or are we more broken than we like to let on? Remember who left justified in God's eyes. It wasn't the righteous Pharisee who had it all together and was doing everything right in his life that we would look up to. It was the broken sinner. Some of the most godly men I've known in my life have been the most willing to admit their sinfulness. When William Carey, the great missionary to India, uh, got terribly sick and he was asked uh, at your funeral what is the, the sermon what is the base text that you'd like your funeral service to be based on listen to what he says oh I feel that such a poor sinful creature is unworthy to have anything said about him but if a funeral sermon must be preached let it be from the words have mercy upon me O God according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Rigby Wallace once told the eldership, never trust a man without a limp. Never trust a man without a limp. There's something about a man or a woman who can be honest about who they really are. That's what God wants in the depths of us. You delight truth in the inward being. My second point this morning, and the second thing David asks for, 
goes through verse 7 to 12. He asks for cleansing. Real repentance wants something more than just forgiveness. It wants to be cleansed. Sometimes people want forgiveness, but they're not ready to change their ways. This is more than just feeling bad over our behavior. This is wanting to live completely differently. It's a change in direction. David doesn't just want God to forgive him. He wants God to change him. In verse 7, there's a wonderful statement of faith. It says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. He is a murderer and an adulterer steeped in the filth of his sin. But in faith, he says, if you take the sin away from me, I will be whiter than snow. And hyssop was um, something they used to wash the lepers. And then after the uh, time of cleansing had passed, they would have been uh, clean. But... um, Hyssop is not what's going to clean David. It's what he's referring to. He's looking down the corridors of time. He knows somewhere in the future, God is going to do something that is going to take his sins away from him. Jesus Christ on the cross, whiter than snow. Nothing is beyond God. When Jesus hung on the cross, every sin from every believer across time was put on him, and the wrath of God was satisfied to look on him and pardon every person who rests on what Christ has done. In verse 8, David talks about joy. He says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. When we have the Holy Spirit inside of us, joy should be a part of the believer's life. It should be there. And when it's not there, it's a sign that something might have gone wrong. Just like with David, there's a possibility that there's unrepentant sin in your heart, and that takes away your joy. We sometimes think that sinners are having this wonderful time, And God is asking us to live these boring lives where we have to restrain ourselves. But here David shows us that the opposite is true. As enticing as his temptation was, as exciting as it was for a moment, what has followed has been a year of loss. In the next few verses, he asks for joy. He asks for gladness. He asks for purity. He asks for righteousness. He asks for nearness. He asks for willingness. Every one of those things has been stolen from him because of his sin. A moment of pleasure is not worth the cost to a vibrant relationship with God. If we allow sin to continue in our lives, it will remove every good thing from us. Joy, health, wealth, and even life itself. I want to make something plain here as we look at these verses. When David says, uh, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me, he's not talking about losing his salvation.
voice comments. Today, most commentators recognize that David is not talking about eternal security or the fear of losing his salvation at all. He is only acknowledging that he is unable to live a holy life without God. Therefore, he needs the help and power of the Holy Spirit every single moment if he is able to be able to overcome temptation and follow after godliness. Perone says, It is the cry of one who knows, as he never knew before, the weakness of his own nature, the strength of temptation, and the need of divine help. We were discussing repentance as a staff this week, and out of that discussion, a couple of thoughts emerged. And we said, sometimes believers stop hearing God's voice. But the really scary thing is that sometimes we can get so uh, far from God that we don't even care that we can't hear his voice. That's what David is realizing here. He has lived for a year with a hard heart. His sin ever before him. His body wasting away. But he won't get real and deal with it. He has allowed himself to drift. He can't feel God's nearness. He can't hear his voice. He's lost his willingness to obey. But now he's come to his senses. Although he hasn't really come to his senses on his own. God has brought him to his senses. Who woke David up from the sinful slumber? God did. God sends Nathan, and the Spirit convicts David. Just as we could not respond to God when we were dead in our sins, before we turned to God uh, and were regenerated, it was God who woke us up. He revealed himself to us. We can do nothing to find God. He opens us up. Our understanding and our knowledge of him comes from God at first. And even when we are steeped in sin, it's the same thing. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. God has opened David's eyes again. And when that happens to you, you do what David does. God will send you Nathan. He will convict you by his spirit. That's the job of the spirit. He does that repeatedly. But when that starts to happen, you do what David does. You run to God. You beg him to change you completely. You turn from your sinful ways and you place your trust in him to help you live rightly before him. Repentance, the name of the sermon, I haven't even shared the title so far, but I'm sure it came up on the screen. It's walking in repentance. It's not just I want to be forgiven or I'm sorry, a feeling, but it's living, actions of walking in repentance. That's where the cleansing comes from. That's how you get changed. When our hearts are hard, we don't care that God is distanced. But when the Spirit works in us and softens that heart God, uh, to God, we wake up and realize what we've been missing and we know we can't live without Him any longer. David has tried living apart from God. He's had enough. He realizes that the Spirit is working in him again, and he turns to God wholeheartedly. And he asks for an entire life change that can only come by the Spirit of God who lives in him. 
You won't lose your salvation by continuing to sin, church, but you will lose your joy. You will lose your ability to hear God's voice, any sense of his nearness. Is that a price you're willing to pay for the empty promises of sin? May God awaken your heart to him. May he remind you of what you once had in him. May you turn to him wholeheartedly and allow him to teach you to walk in repentance. The last thing that David asks for, my final point, he asks God to use him. The last seven verses are about this. He says in verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. He starts off with this powerful word, then. Then speaks of a confidence that God will do what David is asking. God will forgive. God will cleanse. And then God will use David. I stand before you, church, a sinner. I have no right to this pulpit or this position. Based on my works, I would have given up on myself a long time ago. But in God's loving kindness, he came to me and he woke me up to him, first in regeneration, but many times in restoration. And now by his grace, he chooses to use me for his glory. Don't think you're too far gone because of what you have done. If a murderer and an adulterer can still fulfill God's purposes for his life, then nothing you have done disqualifies you. You only need to turn and repent and walk in his ways. God can use anybody for his glory. But you must walk in repentance if you want God to use you. One of the main reasons we see such inactivity in our churches is because we are living in sin. Unrepentant sin squashes any desire to uh, be used by God. It is normal for the regenerate believer to want to be used by God. But when we live with sin... We fall far away from God and we lose this desire. The Spirit gives us this desire. And this desire gives our lives purpose. And we receive great joy when we see God's kingdom extended, even more so when we get to play a part in that. If you don't have a desire for God to use you, then something is not right. Sin squashes this desire or at least leaves us feeling useless and ineffective. But once David repents, he immediately is concerned with being used by God for his glory again. He says, and sinners will return to you. I had this wonderful thought that after David's moral failure, he was better placed to reach sinners. Now, listen, what I'm not saying there is I'm not saying we should seek out moral failures so that we'll be more uh, uh, effective in evangelism or ministry. But the reality is, coming back from big moral failure, we are more humble and more um, understanding of the viewpoints of other sinners. 
sinners respond to testimonies of brokenness and restoration because they are broken. Walking around like pious, righteous Pharisees who've got it all together isn't going to appeal to anyone. Spurgeon says this about David's um, fall. My fall shall be the restoration of others. Thou wilt bless my pathetic testimony to the, the recovery of many who, like myself, have turned aside unto crooked ways. Doubtless this psalm and the whole story of David have produced for many ages the most salutary results in the conversion of transgressors. And so evil has been overruled for good. In verse 14 and 15, we get a look into worship. David shows us that the repentant believer is a great worshiper. His worship is loud, it is wholehearted, and it sings of God's righteousness and God's praise. Sin silences. One of the reasons why we're so silent in our churches is we're living in sin. People can't respond to God in worship. They can't give Him the praise and the glory that He deserves. Don't be afraid to shout aloud to God in worship. It doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. Some of my most special moments in worship have been hearing forgiven sinners shouting aloud their praise and adoration of God. David says, uh, My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness, and my mouth will declare your praise. As we conclude this morning, it's helpful to consider ourselves. How do we come to the psalm this morning? Are we walking in repentance? Are we hiding in sin? Are we perhaps unaware of sin because of hard-heartedness? One way of checking if you're in the last category, because a hard heart doesn't point itself out. So you, have to, you can't just say, I know I'm not hard-hearted. You actually have to interrogate that question. And one way to interrogate that is to ask yourself, how are you doing in the Lord? Do you love Him? Are you experiencing His joy? Do you feel His nearness? Do you have a great desire for God to use you? If your answer is no to some of those questions, then perhaps your heart is hard this morning. And there's nothing you can do to fix that. David says in verse 16 that God does not delight in sacrifices. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. There's nothing you can do to fix. David says that uh, he will do anything. Tell me. Tell me what to sacrifice and I will do it. Whatever I can do to make this right, I will do it. And God's answer to him is, I don't want you to bring any sacrifices. The sacrifice of God is a broken heart. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. If your heart is broken this morning over your sin, then you're in the right place to encounter God. He will draw near the brokenhearted. If your heart is hard, then you need God to do a work in you. 
It was he who made you alive to him at first. And it is he who can change our hearts, hardened by sin. I'm going to close with a poem before I pray. And we have a time of worship at the end. This poem is by William Coper. It's called The Heart Healed and Changed by Mercy. It sums up a lot of what we've been speaking about this morning. Sin enslaved my many years and led me bound and blind till at length a thousand fears came swarming over my mind. Where, said I, in deep distress, will these sinful pleasures end? How shall I secure my peace and make the Lord my friend? Friends and ministers said much, the gospel to enforce. But my blindness still was such, I chose a legal course. Much I fasted, watched and strove, scarce would show my face abroad. Feared almost to speak or move, a stranger still to God. Thus afraid to trust his grace, long time did I rebel, till despairing of my case, down at his feet I fell. Then my stubborn heart he broke, and subdued me to his way, to his sway. By a simple word he spoke, thy sins are done away. Just want you to close your eyes wherever you are in your homes. As we consider our own hearts before God. Lord, we want to be a church that walks in your ways. We want to be a church that loves you, seeks you, serves you. And sin creeps up on us, Lord. Some of us are aware of it, stuck in it. Some of us need you to um, reveal it to us. And some of us just need you to continue to spur us on as we follow you. We need to be careful, those of us who are walking in repentance for a long time, you get overconfident. McShane says that as a long-time believer, sometimes I go closer to danger than others because of my overconfidence. Lord, would you protect us from evil? Would you lead us not into temptation? Would you convict, Lord, where there is a need for conviction, where we've been living apart from you for so long, maybe months like David, maybe longer? Would you come by your Holy Spirit this morning and convict us? May we turn to you with all of our hearts and serve you with all of our strength. Would you be glorified in our broken lives? In Jesus' name.
Amen.
Yes, Lord, we thank you so much that you are our living hope, that our hope is not in our strength, our hope is not in our actions, our hope is in Jesus Christ. You're our one defense, you're our righteousness. And so we ask, Lord, as you start to work in our hearts and, and reveal sin to us that we need to deal with, that we run to you, knowing that you're abundant in mercy and you're steadfast in love. We thank you, Lord, for the goodness of Christ. We thank you that he is our hope our anchor that we can cling on to and is by through, and through Christ only that we can know you and enjoy this relationship with you in Jesus name amen thank you everyone uh, thank you so much for joining us online it's the end of the service have a great week don't forget to message those um, that you prayed for to encourage them and send them scriptures if you God laid in in your heart have a great week cheers